Okay, so I think today's uh, topic, um, I think it's a very ambitious one, and I hope that we could do it justice because, quick disclaimer, and I'm sure you knew this coming in, when we say a primer on Jewish literature, uh, there's a lot. Uh, when we talk about Jewish literature, and Torah literature specifically, um, we're not talking about like, I don't know, War and Peace or uh, the uh, Communist Manifesto or anything like that. We're talking about Torah literature. Uh, and when we talk about uh, something as vast as Torah literature, we're dealing with a ever-evolving, ever-developing um, um, wisdom that on any given day, there's 10 or 12 new books being published on this issue. You know? uh, what's remarkable, I think, um, or maybe one of the things that, I, that we want to get, gain appreciation uh, th- uh, throughout this, this, uh, this class is that uh, the Torah literature never stops constantly evolving, constantly developing. And even today, we're dealing with thousands of years into the project of, of, of unlocking the secrets of the Torah. There's more books being published uh, on a yearly basis on this particular uh, corner of scholarship than any other scholarship in the world. It means uh, there's more books written about Torah than biology. Um, um, there's more books written about Torah than anything, than in history, any, any, any form of, of scholarship. You know, there's more... Uh, there's probably more like uh, silly or romantic uh, novels written uh, than Torah books. But in, in scholarship, in wisdom, in people dedicating their lives to, a, to, to study of, of, of deep, uh, you know, of a deep wisdom, there's more scholarship in Torah. You know, and think about it. How many people are there studying Torah in the world comparatively? Like how many Jews? We're, we're but 0.02% of the world's population. And how many of the Jews are, are, are uh, dedicate their lives towards Torah study to the degree that they're able to write a book on it, on the matter. It's also very minute. Yet, uh, yet this group is producing more scholarship than any other group and any other wisdom. So that's, I think, a, a one appreciation that, uh, that I want to be able to get to. Well, we're going to scour like, the different books throughout the, the centuries, obviously starting with the, the book, uh, uh, the Torah, obviously, uh, down to this day. And um, my goal um, is hopefully... Um, a f- you know, we'll be able to gain a few things. Number one, like we said, an appreciation of, of the depth uh, and the breadth of Jewish learning. We're going to see something remarkable about a, a wisdom that, that is thousands of years old, thousands, and is still vibrant today. And it's still incredibly studied and incredibly meaningful and impactful to people that, that, that they study. Think, think about this. Think how unprecedented it is that you have thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people studying 10 hours a day uh, books that were written thousands of years ago. It's just remarkable. Think of the staying power. Like, nothing shares that. Nothing. Even, you know, people that study Shakespeare. How many people are studying Shakespeare, like, in depth, you know? And that's a few, only a couple hundred years old. And it's finite. You know, there's not, how many books were written about it? Then? No other uh, corpus of wisdom is as dynamic, as influential, as impactful as the Torah. So that, that's one th- another thing I want to uh, 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 kind of uh, gain appreciation for. Um, a basic outline, obviously, of Jewish books, and also, this is important, the tr- I'm going to try to focus specifically on the framework of what we call halacha. Now, the word halacha is reference to, to law, but practical law. Uh, there's a lot of law that's not so practical, uh, because, for example, if you open up the Talmud, even you open up Leviticus, 
And you start reading it, and you're like, this is not practical today. This is not practical today. You, you go through, and you'll f- find a very hard time finding something that you, living in Houston, as a man or a woman or a Cohen or an Israelite or anyone, could actually fulfill. Uh, so, so that's what we, we wouldn't necessarily call that halacha. Uh, but there are a lot of things that we can fulfill. And the process of taking the Torah and how it's developed and how it's organized into uh, the, uh, the, the epitome of scholarship, which is halacha, is very fascinating, I, I believe, and we'll try to demonstrate it as well. And lastly, I think maybe this is maybe the paramount reason why we're going to try to do this, is when we, we think about what we're selling here, like what are we talking about? When we say the word Torah, we mean God's instructions for us to fix humanity. So just think about the gravity of the claim. It's instruction from God himself, creator of heaven and earth and all the universes and all the cosmos, and it's given to us, to mortal man, to to a finite man, to small-minded, narrow-minded man, as a tool to perfect themselves, as a tool to perfect humanity. Right. It's 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 morality that's going to spread through, spread spread out and change the world, and we see in fact that it did. You know the the, the, the Torah um, morality and this the great system of of law that the Torah outlined thousands upon thousands of years ago is still valid today and could still be applied today. And in fact, most of of of, of Western uh, of of Western countries have laws that are modeled after the Torah in some capacity or, or other. But if, think about it, so that, that's the claim. If God is going to do something, God made our livers, pretty fantastic um, organs, I'm sure. Bernie could give us a whole lecture on it. Or our brains. <laughs> our brain. Like, when God does something, he goes all out. Like, you know, like the brain. How many, how many, how many, how many different connections are we dealing with in the brain? Trillions. Trillions and upon trillions upon trillions. Just so vast. And so incredible and so organized. Everything. It's just perfect. You know? Because when God does something, he does it all out. And in Judaism, we say that one of the ways we can connect to God is by analyzing what God does. And that could be uh, in um, just observing the world and science. It could be just studying anatomy or, or studying the Torah. Because you gain a similar appreciation when you plumb into the depths of the wisdom of what God does you gain a certain measure of understanding into who God is. Hence, it's, it's a point of connection, a point of interface that simple, narrow-minded man should have with the infinite God, creator of heaven and earth. So, God does the Torah. He's going to follow the same format. It's going to have the same complexity. It's going to have the same subtlety. It's going to have the same power of lasting ability as... Every, uh, every other bit of God's creation, uh, just with the same, the same measure of perfection. So, so what we're going to try to uh, uh, uncover is that you have God here giving us wisdom with the intention of it maintaining its, its purity and its accuracy for forever, really. And how was that done? Like, if, you know, if, 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 if man had, had organized this, uh, this, uh, this wisdom men probably would have structured it differently, you know. But because God did it, and God did it in a way that it has to be maintained, and maintained by who? By us mortal mans. The Torah is given to us. The Torah is God's wisdom, hand-delivered to humans. 
today hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll discover how would God go, go about doing something. If, 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 you know, if, you know, if you were God, so to speak, how would you have done it in a way that it, that, that it would have uh, it, it been perpetuated in, 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 in its accuracy for millennia? Probably different than the, than the way it was. But when we work backwards and we see how it was, how it was delivered, uh, we see how remarkable it is, and, and it's a testament to the fact that it has uh, been maintained um, um, perfectly uh, uh, to this day. So that's what we're going to try to do. What do you guys say? We have a, we have a, huh? Let's go for it. Yeah. Okay, so the first book that we're going to analyze is, is the Torah, uh, the Torah itself. And we talk about the Torah. Um, it, Torah has a narrow and, and, and broad, a broad meaning. Um, when we're talking about the Torah, we're talking about the five books of Moses. Very first five, very first five books. Anyone knows the names? Everyone who knows the names of the books? Yeah. What's the names, Bernie? Bereshit. Very good. Genesis. Both. Exodus. Vayikra. Terrific. Uh, Terrific. Numbers. And, uh, Devarim. Deuteronomy. So these are these five books are the most important books in uh, in uh, in the Jewish world because these are the books given by the Almighty to Moses. Written by Moses, as evident in the book itself, written by Moses uh, in the wilderness. You know, the Jewish people leave leave Egypt. They um, they go to Mount Sinai right right after they leave it, just a month afterwards. They're at Mount Sinai. They're at Mount Sinai for an entire year. They have the whole Ten Commandments experience, as recorded in Exodus uh, chapter twenty and uh, Deuteronomy fourteen or something like that. Fifteen, I don't know. Some, somewhere there. <laughs> uh, they have that. Moses goes up to the mountain. He's there for 40, 40 days. He comes back, and the Jewish people are sinning, or some, some segments of the Jewish people are sinning. Uh, the, um, with the golden calf, he goes up again, tries to intercede on their behalf, eventually goes up a third time, comes back on Yom Kippur, comes back on Yom Kippur, and that's why Yom Kippur is a day designated for atonement, for forgiveness, because that's the day where God finally said he's going to forgive the nation. He gives Moses a second set of tablets uh, to replace the ones that were broken. They settle down and start building a mishra, a tabernacle, which is the core of what would eventually be, be the temple. And they're there for an entire, uh, an additional half a year studying Torah. Right? What do they have to study with? Which books do they have? No one knows? That's right. They have no books to study. So what are they studying? They're studying what's called the Oral Torah. Moses is about to die. Moses delivers 13 scrolls, written scrolls, to the people. Why 13? Everyone knows why 13? One for each tribe. Each one of the 12 tribes of of the people, they each got their own scroll, and one that was a central scroll. And these scrolls were part of the, every tribe maintained their scrolls for hundreds and even thousands of years. I I don't know, we don't have them now. The oldest scroll scrolls that we have today are the ones that we found in Qumran with the Dead Sea Scrolls. That's the oldest uh, copies of the scroll, about 2,000 years. But these scrolls, we have documentation of them being, uh, being used and modeled um, or use as source material for or all future Torah scrolls. So, in, in essence, the Torah scrolls that we have today are copies of copies of copies of the ones written by, by Moses. Because as we know, a Torah scroll has to be copied from an additional Torah scroll. You cannot write a Torah scroll from a chumash, you cannot write it from memory, you cannot write it from writing on the internet. It has to be written from an extant Torah scroll. 
Torah So Moses delivered 12 Torah scrolls, and those were the ones that were used uh, to copy. And those were also referenced upon each other. All future copies, every, every couple of hundred years, they would get together, and they would, uh, they would compare the Torah scrolls. You know, the Torah, a Torah scroll contains 304,805 letters. So it's a very, it's, very, it's a, lot, a lot of information, you know. It's, it's uh, you know, and, and if you have a Torah scroll that's missing one letter, or it's, it's, it has an additional letter, or if one letter is cracked, or because or, it's, it's written on cloth, it's written, it's written by hand with ink. And if, if, if you have, let's say, one letter that the, the Dalit is cut off halfway, the entire Torah scroll is invalidated. And if you have an invalid Torah scroll, you have 30 days to fix it, or else you have to bury it. Now, uh, because we have to, we, this book, remember, like we said, if God's going to do something, he's going to do it in a way that's going to have lasting value forever. And therefore, the Torah scrolls have to be copied from each other. Uh, the, uh, the scribe has to uh, pronounce the words before he writes them. Uh, and that was the method that was used, or some of the methods that was used to prevent mistakes from falling into the, uh, into the Bible. Now, so let's stop here and talk about how, how, the, how this will work, because this will be very, very important. We talk about the Talmud and the Mishnah later on. Uh, we're going to um, we're have to hear about what, how exactly the oral Torah worked. Now, I know that the word oral Torah um, sounds, you know, it sounds problematic. Like, there's a lot of problems, and we're going to try to address them. Like, we're going to do, you know, and, and feel free to uh, interject with your questions, Bernie. I see you have them. No. Or your skepticism. <laughs> so, <sighs> Moses... Moses is teaching, we're at Mount Sinai, Moses is teaching the people Torah. How does he go about doing that? How is he going to be transmitting the godly wisdom to the people? So it's going to start off like this. Moses is going to bring in Joshua. Moses is going to tell him orally, hence the word orally, he's going to tell him what he learned, like there's a mitzvah, like a mitzvah, let's say, I don't know, don't break the bones of the Korban Pesach, of the the Passover offering. You know, it was a special offering that you have to that's be roasted. Very uh, uh, um, a mitzvah that was done uh, when the, uh, every Passover, every Passover night by the seder, they would uh, every Jewish family would go to Jerusalem. This happened for thousands of years. Every family would go to Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem they would bring a small little animal, a small little sheep. They would uh, they would Did slaughter the it. Family go? Or yeah, yeah. Males. Sometimes, sometimes it was it was well. I think males are obligated. Males, but uh, children and women were not obligated, but I think they went as well. Like as evidence. Well, one of the, yeah, that's the pilgrimage. It was, you know. That's why they wouldn't have gone. Why no. not? Schlepping a bunch of kids? Have you ever done that? You know, we, we were we were in Canada for a week and a half. And uh, yeah, we slept four kids there. I did the drive from Canada. I know what it is. You know, I had my daughter throw up me in the plane. You know, mm. I've been there. <laughs> we used yeah. to fly. We used to fly um, to Israel with like stopovers in like the Ukraine or Prague or because like, exotic because it was you know because it was cheaper than flying direct. Mm-hmm. And you pull out your hair and like try to gouge out your eyes and say, "I'm never doing this again." <laughs> yeah, um, but no, but you're right. There's no obligation, but uh, you know, they, if they would want to participate, which 
But we do have accountings, uh, um, you know, most famously the beginning of, uh, of the book of Samuel. It talks about the pilgrimage everyone went up. And Bernie. I'm trying to get straight. We, we talked about, you just talked about Passover. Uh, with the, the sacrifice, yes. Yeah. yeah, so there's but, a... But we're, all, we're just in Exodus. It's happening now, and you're talking about for thousands of years they've been doing this. Well, that's... that's, that's Since, not... During the 40 years that they were in the desert, they were doing that? Of course. The, the first year after they left, they had a mitzvah of bringing the, bringing the carbon pass off. Exactly. And, and, and so that's my example I was bringing. Thank you for bringing me back here. So you have a mitzvah to bring a, uh, a, an animal. You sacrifice it. You kill it. Right? You can only eat meat if it's dead. It's a sacrifice. It's dead. Uh, and then you roast it, and then you consume it. And everyone has a mitzvah for everyone to consume it. Now... That's one mitzvah. Another mitzvah is that you're not allowed to break the bones of, of the Korban Pesach, of the, of the sacrifice. Another mitzvah is you're not allowed to take it outside of the a place that you're eating. So you can't, like, grab, like, a, you know, a, you know, a leg and run out and start nibbling on it outside. These are separate mitzvahs. So, so Moses brings in Joshua and tells him there's a mitzvah to do the Korban Pesach. The Passover uh, uh, um, sacrifice. Uh, there's another mitzvah that you're not allowed to break the bones. There's another mitzvah that you have to consume it before midnight, and if you don't, you have to burn it the next morning. There's another mitzvah that you can't you can't break it out. Like these, that's what he did, and he gives him the mitzvahs, and he gives him the the the, the, um, the immutable principles and the applications of that mitzvah. Joshua uh, uh, Joshua sits to Moses' right, and then Aaron comes in and he does the entire process again. So Aaron hears it uh, as well from, uh, from, from Moses, and Joshua is still there, and he hears it again um, he, for the second time. Aaron's sons come in, and the elders of the people, the leaders of the people, the heads of the Sanhedrin, they would come in and they hear it again. So Joshua hears it three times. Aaron hears it twice, they hear it the first time. And then the entire assembly comes, and they do the mass presentation to everyone again. And then Joshua does their presentation. Everyone eventually hears it at least four times, and they study with each other. They memorize it. You know, they memorize it. And this process of studying not just the written word, the written law, right, the, the 304,000 letters of the written law, but also understanding how to apply it, like what to actually do all the, with the principles and the applications, the interpretations, the understanding of fulfilling this written, uh, written document, written instructions, was transmitted and memorized orally from rabbi to student, from parent to child, for fifteen hundred years. Simple question: You mentioned the, San, the Sanhedrin. Did yes. They have the Sanhedrin during the exodus. Moses, yes, Moses forms the Sanhedrin in in uh, in yeah, it, Numbers it, 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 Numbers eleven. Yes, yes. So I didn't realize that's when the Sanhedrin was formed. Mm-hmm. I thought it was formed much later. Well, it wasn't. Oh, <laughs> No, 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 I, I'm saying it's, it's, uh, it's, no, it's, uh, I believe it's, uh, no, um, no, it's, it's in the book of numbers. I the great elders of the assembly, and I knew it eventually filtered to become the Sanhedrin, but I didn't realize that. Yes, so the Moses founded, 70, Moses founded, I think it's in uh, Numbers 11, 17, something like that. Well, that's right. that's something that else. That's an exodus. Else? No, that's something oh, okay. else. That that was, that was, I think, a precursor to that. Um, we'll see this a little bit. That's fr- how it all begins. Yeah.
Yes, in, in Exodus, in Exodus, Moses' father-in-law comes in and he sees Moses standing day and night just adjudicating the people right, yeah. and he says, it doesn't make any sense. Why should the head honcho be doing all the petty matters? Yeah. You know, so they assigned leaders of 10, leaders of 100, leaders of 1,000, leaders of 10,000. And only like the most difficult questions would actually filter up to Moses and he would have some semblance of a life. When was the... Well, the, the, the Pharisees, is a, the term, as the term? The, fa- the, far- the Pharisee, the term Pharisee uh, was invented uh, um, when, well, by, I don't know about the, by the Christians... Um, no, it's not, not necessarily by the Christians, because Josephus writes that before the Christians. And it's, it's also a term in, found in Jewish sources. But the Pharisees was a term invented to differentiate from the Sadducees. So uh, Sadducees uh, were, we talked about them already, they were a group of people that rejected the oral law and invented their own oral law. Uh, but then there were those, uh, a perusha means someone who, uh, who um, abstains. Purusha means they abstain. So the term of the people that abstain from joining the rebellion were called, and were the regular Jews, were called, were were labeled as Purushim, as Pharisees. Uh, we have a dichotomy right there. Is it because they rejected the oral law? Who are they? Who are they reject the oral law or Sadducees? Who were they? I mean, why? Who, why they do that? question no. that exists even today. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, but that, that I'm saying, but if you remember, we did have a history class, and we talked about the period at the beginning of the Second Commonwealth, um, where the Sanhedrin, uh, their role as central uh, adjudicators of the people was diminished, and additionally, you have uh, the end of the uh, the end of the period of, of prophets. Also, you have a, um, a divided, not divided people, but a, but a nation where not, not everyone lives in Israel. The majority of Jews live in, in Babylon. And that brought about ability for dissent amongst, amongst the people because you could now say, hey, um, you, there's no prophets and there's no, the central authority is much more weakened. And it opened the door for people to, uh, to reject some of the basic principles of, of, of Jewish law, like the oral Torah. So that's, we have the Sadducees, you have the Baitusim, um, and this is something we see again and again. You have the 9th ninth, ninth century, the Karaites, um, uh, the, the, you know, these, and even, even the Christians, early Christians were a group that made a departure from, um, from, the, from the mainstream normative Judaism, um, in, and it was a departure in, in the oral law. Like, no, no one, no one uh, in his, I don't think anyone has, until recently, until, until the, um, the, the higher uh, Bible criticism movement of the late 19th century, you don't really have much dissent into the authenticity, legitimacy of the written Torah. It was all questioning the oral Torah. And it's a legitimate question. I think it's something that I, w- I want to address today. Like, hey, how do we know what's the evidence that it wasn't fabricated or whatever? That's a good question. Mm-hmm. Well, isn't that, um, maybe I'm misunderstanding, but isn't that also kind of a, a, um, a root issue of the different branches of Judaism today? Oh, absolutely. You absolutely. Know? I mean, like, even though we are Reformed, like, I, I see that to some extent, like, there are aspects of the Reformed movement that are mm-hmm. a rejection of the oral Torah. Yeah, and what well, does that make? Uh, the, original, the original Reform movement uh, was for sure that. Uh, yeah. Today, I would. I would argue that um, that today, like the reform today, is not necessarily the same. Yes, yeah, not what yeah. it used to be. Like yeah. you know, 
if if someone truly rejects the oral Torah, then they would reject, let's say, the mitzvah of lighting Hanukkah Completely candles. You know, candles you know. So the you know the ancient reform or the early reform is very different than today's reform. I, I, to, like to me, even though I don't like talking about this topic, but to me, like today, the differences between the you did that uh, strands of Judaism is more in, in observance, I think, yeah. than, than 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 ideology. Yeah. It used to be mu- it used to be much more rooted in ideology. Like yeah. if you read about like the doctrine of of early reform, like if you look at the if you look at the um, Pittsburgh Platform of 1885, mm-hmm. Google it, mm-hmm. and it was a it was a convention basically that tried to you know to try to crystallize what is Reform Judaism beliefs. Mm-hmm. This is a long time ago. This is what you know, you know 130 years ago, whatever. Mm-hmm. And you read this today, and you ask a Reform rabbi today if they agree with that. Um, all Reform rabbis would disagree with it, every yeah. single one, because it says uh, we don't believe in having a home in, in Palestine and mm-hmm. uh, all ritualistic law. And, like it was, it was a wholesale abandonment yeah. of. But today, today, you know, you look at the uh, the updated Reform um, kind of uh, doctrines or whatever, mm-hmm. or description of tenets, and it it's about Torah, it's about tradition, it's about mitzvahs, yeah. and it's about observance. I'm saying. Okay, so so what's the difference? It's just a difference in levels of practice. I think. And then in reality, reform I think just ends up being a catch-all because, like a lot, of, you know, like us here, like it's the only Jewish option, and so you know, different levels of practice are in this you know catch-all congregation. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I'm saying that's 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 true. Yeah. Um, but what's clear is that the kind of discussions that we have today, mm-hmm. we learn about um, all like. All, Traditional Jewish sources and Jewish philosophy, and like, like that was that was not possible in the Reform in the nineteenth yeah. century. Yeah. That was not, uh, you know, like if you walked into a Reform synagogue, mm-hmm. even fifty or seventy years ago with a kippah, you would be ostracized. Yeah. yeah, like that's that's what it used to be, which is ridiculous. Like it's it's a shul, you know. Yeah. Like, well, I was you know I was married by a famous Reform rabbi who uh, he knew that I went to this conservative synagogue, but he, he said he would not wear a yarmulke mm-hmm. at the uh, wedding. This is named Bertram Korn. I don't know if you've heard of him. He was an admiral. He's, he's, he's uh, buried in the Arlington. in Arlington Cemetery. And he was a, a Civil War historian. But he refused to wear a kippah. Yeah, but it wasn't a big you know, thing about it, but he, he made a point saying when he met with us before the wedding. Uh, you know, so that's, 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 I'm saying it's I think that uh, the divisions between different groups of Judaism are dissolving, and I think mm-hmm. that's a good thing, yeah, because because you know if you look at at the at the classical Jewish sources, you find um, you don't find like uh, you know you find obviously uh, dissent, and of course, but the, the idea of labeling Jew, different Jews as, as that's a new thing, you know, mm-hmm. like, this is this kind of Jews and that kind of Jews. I, I feel like you know, hey, we're a family. We, we have a shared history. We have a lot to be proud of together. You know, we have a universal vision. You know, we could be Jews, you know. We, well, we could just be Jews, and, and, and uh, uh, we don't have to deliberately try to, you know, try to make as many schisms and internal fights. And I guess recognizing that different levels of observance are not necessarily outright rejection of, of oral Torah, just mm-hmm. a different way of looking at it, or different, being in a different place in life. 
And I have a question. Can I a question going way, way back, way back to Exodus? Yeah. Okay. So the establishment of the Sanhedrin coming from Moses. You've got the situation where Jethro comes in and tells Moses to get help, and then they set up kind of decision-making leaders on each level based on population groups. And then there's also an instance where um, at some point God causes a number of people aside from Moses to prophesy, and like some of them are at mm-hmm. Mount Sinai, and then some of them are back in the camps, and there's mm-hmm. a debate. Is what is are those not are those are not the same instances or? Well, the, we again? we have many instances of like not many, but we have some like that's like a, the the cases of uh, the renegade prophets. Mm-hmm. Was it that? No, like well, there like was, there was a there point where and they were prophesizing they that Moses is going to die and Joshua will take us in the land of Israel. And they kind of went awry. Um, there's okay. rules about prophecy. Um, what the prophets allowed to do, what prophets allowed not to do, how exactly prophecy works, and how do you become a prophet? Is like what's what's the outline? How do you do it? You know, what's the qualifications? And maybe I'm misremembering, but there's like aren't those the people that are chosen as like leaders, like the initial elders? Like there's a group of the the the, the I, I think I believe the verse the verse in 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 Numbers talks about the the shotrim the the. Um, the police officers or the um, taskmasters of mm-hmm. of the Jews in Egypt, the ones that were in charge of smaller groups of Jews, they were the ones who were chosen to be the Sanhedrin. Okay. Uh, because they were the ones who had self-sacrifice, um, and they were the ones who would take the blows uh, in favor of protecting uh, uh, their their people, mm-hmm. and hence they, they are the ones who are worthy of leadership. Okay. You know, but the group is around... From the time from the time of Moses mm-hmm. until basically the second century, and if if you actually look at if you look at the history of Sanhedrin, you have basically the history of the development of the Oral Torah, because at the time that Sanhedrin is its strongest, we find no accounts of any disagreements. You know, if you look at the seven eight hundred years um, from the times of Moses till let's say the times of Hillel. You know, so maybe even 900 years, we don't find any accounts of any disagreements. Mm-hmm. You know, we we find conflict. Um, you know, we find maybe maybe uh, maybe theoretical or, or political disagreements. Mm-hmm. Uh, we find divisions amongst the people, but we don't find any halachic, any 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 Torah-based disagreements mm-hmm. until you have the period where the Sanhedrin becomes weaker, where you have uh, Gentile forces um, 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 interfering with. Uh, with how the Sanhedrin operates, their position becomes weakened, and that, together with the disappearance of the prophecy, opens up the door for internal disagreement, because prophecy and Sanhedrin are methods to ensure that uh, that uh, if mistakes or disagreements do arise, then they're mediated. So uh, this is Deuteronomy 17, very, very important verse. It says, if there's a disagreement between a law and a different law, between a blood and a different blood, you should bring it up to the Sanhedrin, and you should present your arguments, and then you should do as they instruct you, and don't deviate from the way they instruct you, right or left. Mm-hmm. You know, and Rashi that tells you, even if they tell you that right is left and left is right, don't, don't, uh, don't, uh, don't depart from, from, from their instruction. So that when the Sanhedrin has that power as... Uh, as granted to them by the Torah, right, there's no room for any debate. Like, because if there is a debate, if there is a disagreement in any law or any application of any law, 
all you do is follow the you know follow the ways of, of mediating you by bringing it to Sanhedrin and they would vote or they or they would mediate because that was the uh, the epicenter of the oral Torah transmission they become weaker right we have open openings for debate you have periods where the the Sanhedrin was temporarily disbanded for 10 12 years so you have generations that had room for doubt and, 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 you know, that could uh, fester into, uh, you know, in, into potentially, um, you know, what, uh, uh, what could be construed as two Judaisms. Mm-hmm. You have the Sanhedrin being totally disbanded, and that coincides with the writing of the Oral Torah in the form of the Mishnah. Because once you lose this pre- preventative measure of ensuring that mistakes do not perpetuate, then they, in fact, will perpetuate. Mm-hmm. And your only option is to write it down because otherwise, uh, if it's just maintained in its oral form and you don't have the same stability uh, to ensure that that's done uh, properly and you don't have the preventative measures to ensure that if a mistake should arise, that it will be mediated, then you're toast. Because within 100, 200, 300 years, you'll have variant uh, or divergent Judaisms and then we could just close up shop, just shutter the doors on humanity. Uh, so that's why the Mishnah had 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 to have have been written. So when we talk about the, this 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 the, the the first book that we're going to analyze, the, the the written Torah, it's very important to know that it is not a final book. If you lo- if you if you just read the Torah, if you were to just discover the book, find out this is the Word of God, and open it and start reading, you wouldn't know how to practice. Like the, the Torah says, you should not do melacha on Shabbat. Don't do melacha. Don't do work. It doesn't give you any description of how of what's considered work, what's not considered work. It is, is, am I allowed to pull my couch from one end of the other room? Is that considered work? It's all arbitrary. And remember, if God does something, if God's going to give us instruction, it's not going to be up to our own personal interpretation because then everyone can do what as they want and it can never be judged and never be ruled or anything like that. Four times in the Torah it says you should wear totafot between your eyes and, and on your arm. Nowhere does it say what tough it is and what it looks like, how it's made, and how you wear it. Not, nothing. Yet, if we look at the tefillin that was found in this past century in the caves in Masada of, uh, of, of the soldiers of Bar Kokhba, and we compare them to the tefillin that we have today, they're identical. 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 Four boxes uh, or four compartments in the, in the tefillin of the head uh, containing four scrolls, uh, one compartment on the one of the arm, containing one scroll. Which particular parts of the Torah identical? Right, the order of the uh, of of what where to put uh, what upon in which slot identical. Like, remarkably, um, what's clear is that the methods of implementing the law was uh, was 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 uniform across the people. That can only be if there was a companion uh, um, um, uh, corpus of, of, of information to tell you how to do that. Um, now, I, I, this is, I, I, you know, I think this is maybe perhaps um, will make this whole idea uh, uh, more understandable. Oh, there's another great story here. This is a great story. Um, there's a story Talmud tells about Hillel. Hillel and converts. So uh, we have the one with this, you know, standing on one leg. Everyone knows that story. Uh, but there's another story where uh, the convert comes to Hillel and says, hey, I want to I I convert to Judaism, 
but I only want to convert. I only want to convert um, and accept the written Torah. That's it. The written Torah. It's clear. It's solid. There's evidence. It's been around for thousands of years. It's 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 uh, it's, it's transmitted perfectly. This is the unadulterated word of God. The oral Torah. The rabbi is there. Yeah. Who knows that the telephone game? I don't want to deal with that. Right, so what does Hill say to him? Okay, sure. So he converts him. And then after the guy comes, hey, listen, I'm totally ignorant. Why don't you teach me how to teach me teach me Torah? So the new convert comes, and Hill sits him down and teaches him, okay, fine, they open up Genesis. They start reading, and he says, well, what are these? He doesn't know Hebrew either. So he says, well, this is a bet, and this makes the bet sound, and this is a resh, and this makes the, the, the R sound, and the Aleph. And he teaches them how to read, and teaches them the first verse of the, of the Torah. And he says, okay, fine, after an hour, go back, come back tomorrow. And he, the guy, guy comes back tomorrow, and he says, okay, let's, let, let's review what we did yesterday. But this time Hillel switches the letters and says the bays makes a lamet sound and the and the reish makes a gimel sound. He switches the letters, and the guy's like scratching his head. Wait a minute! Yesterday you told me that this was the letters and this is the orders and this is what they, this is the sounds they make, and now you're changing it. So Hillel tells him, "You see, if you don't have if you don't rely on your teachers, you don't even know how to read. Like, how do you know what a what sound a bet makes? How do you know? Only because you heard it, right?" Exactly. So you, ha- if you don't trust the people that 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 are instructing you, right, you're not going to be able to study anything. Right? Even understanding what the marks of, of Hebrew make, what sounds they make, that alone requires uh, an oral component as well. But the question is, why would God do it like this? Doesn't it make sense? Just write it all down. You have an index. What to do with all the law? Right? Obviously, it'll be a lot because once they actually did write it down, it came out to 63 books. And uh, that's just the Mishnah. And then you have the Sifra, Sifri, Torah, Tonim, Mechilta, Toseftas. There's just it, such voluminous content here. But write it all down. Wouldn't that, you got to do it, right? God, you know, God can figure it out. So God, God can make our brains and our liver and our heart and make the world, you know, you know be you know, right at the sweet spot of, 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 of human habitation, you know. If God can make uh, vegetation grow out of the ground, out of, out of soil, God can figure out how to do it. Just write it all down. Once you write it all down, and it's simple. Isn't that, a, isn't that a better solution? We don't have to have this whole argument, and we don't have to have the whole skepticism of, is it true, is it not? And, you know, there was this, this, there was this one conservative rabbi who, um, who, took, um, who took 30 of his, uh, of his congregants, and they, they played the telephone game, the broken telephone game. And he was trying to use this to prove that the that the written Torah couldn't possibly have been transmitted accurately. So he takes thirty and he, he gives a secret message to one of them, and then the guy transmits the other one. They do thirty because thirty is the right amount of times. You know, we talk about from Moses till Rabbi Judah the Prince. It's only thirty generations. So you think about ah, fifteen hundred. It's thirty generations. So it's thirty handoffs from one generation to another generation. So we're not dealing with thousands of generations, you know. Like since since Moses' time, we're about a hundred and like ten generations. It's like very minimal. Like it's not so much. Uh, it's not that many handoffs. So, but this guy said, "We'll take thirty, and they did it, and it was a totally scrambled message. And like, oh, evidence proof that this couldn't have been transmitted accurately." Then there was a different guy who said, "Like, you know what? I'm going to take thirty kids and give them a message, and and let's see if they can transmit it." But he made it did a catch. He said. If we do it correctly, if I, t- I tell the first guy, I tell the first guy the message, and he has to pass it on, and the last guy has to announce it out loud. If it's accurate, everyone gets fifty bucks. 
It's like a bunch of eight-year-old kids. Everyone gets $50. Every single one of you, 30. And for an eight-year-old, $50 is a lot of money. And voila, what happened? It was perfect, you know? So <laughs> it was perfect. And his argument was, hey, we have to realize that the gravity of the seriousness and the importance that the Jewish communities ascribed to main, maintaining the accuracy of the transmission was so important. They valued it so much that they took such care to make sure that it was transmitted accurately, and then that could be transmitted accurately. Mm-hmm. But just write it down. Just write it down. Isn't that a simpler way to do things? So why does it have to be oral? The answer is like this. When God does something he does it perfectly. If God's give us a Torah, he's going to give it to us in a way that's going to maximize the, our ability to maintain it and teach it in its most pure form forever. There are many, many benefits of oral instruction. If anyone here went to university, right, I could ask the same question of you. Right? Bernie, you became a doctor. How many years did you spend studying in school? You know, and, and too many. Too many, right? Just give me the book. Yay big. Let me read it. Why do I ever have to see any patients? Why do I have to ever actually be there hands-on and hear instructions and hear lectures from other doctors? Why? But they're Just, doing that now, everything online. And, you know. Yeah, even, even online. It's, it's, yeah, it's even video. It's yes. just, <laughs> uh, but not, no, one, no one gets the book. Why? Because nothing compares to oral instruction. Mm-hmm. Nothing. For, for a few reasons. First of all, when someone has an oral instruction What's, what are they teaching? They're teaching a principle. Principle masked or covered or shrouded in example. Like if I'm going to teach you a principle about the laws of maintaining, safeguarding my property that it doesn't damage your property. So what am I going to do? I'm going to say, if, if I was doing that today, I would say, uh, I cannot have, I don't know, my Wi-Fi router or something like that, or like my bandwidth on my phone or something like that, interfere with your signal. Like that's probably the example I would have given. You open up the Talmud and it gives examples. There's so many books written about my animal who gores your animal. Now, I don't know, maybe you guys have like pets or like dogs or cats or something like that, but probably none of us have an ox. And we don't plow fields. Probably, I don't know. I can't. Is anyone here that has an ox, pet ox? <laughs> yeah. Not currently, but my grandparents did have a yeah, okay, fine. We, like, I grew up around animals. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so we have an I'm example. Sorry. I'm sorry. Um, I'm that, that's fine. No, that's fine. <laughs> but, yeah, but, like, we did. We had cows and goats and dogs and chickens. That's cool. And pigs. My grandfather had pigs. That's... He wasn't Jewish. So um, <laughs> for us, uh, with the exception of your grandfather, uh, um, <laughs> the best example for us to have to be given about guarding your life, it might be your car, it might be, uh, it might be uh, your home, it might be your permit. Uh, uh, it could be anything like that. It wouldn't be uh, cows and oxen goring each other. But because the oral Torah had to be written down by necessity, therefore the principles had to be presented in the form of examples that were contemporary. So 2,000 years ago, everyone was basically farm- farmers, and that's what they owned. Property was, 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 was livestock. Therefore, the way to present the immutable principle was with an example that, uh, that is time-dated, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So the benefit of having oral instruction is that it's very fluid. 
it could be updated and with the, the examples could you know could could change every generation as the development of technology progresses you have you take the principle the core principle remains unchanged the application and presentation of that principle is updated for whatever is contemporary you, you could use the lingo and uh, you know the vernacular the lexicon of the people that you're talking to and you update the principle uh, uh, you know you know you, you you maintain the principle but you update it with the application that is contemporary that's a benefit that you only get with uh, with oral like as in our example like if if in today in, me- in medical school they have lots of new techniques and lots of new drugs and they have these da Vinci little surgeon surgeon guys right they update it and it's the, you know the people today if you were to give them uh, uh, Bernie's education they would be uh, somewhat at a disadvantage uh, when it comes to uh, uh, practicing medicine today is that right benefit number two when I teach something orally, there's the benefit of uh, vocal inflection. Uh, I may have given this example before, my favorite example. I did not get my right. I, exactly. I did, did, did this yeah. example with everyone here. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I won't do it again. But clearly, if I say something, <clears throat> I could use a lot of vocal tools mm-hmm. and even visual gyrations mm-hmm. to make my point uh, to, to present my point uh, across in a much um, in a much better fashion. Like, if I tell you, I just use this example because you guys all remember it, so it must be it worked. If I say you the words, six words, ready? I did not hit my wife. What does it mean? What does it mean? You didn't hit her. Uh, that's right. Okay. I'm going to say the same words. You tell me what it means. I didn't hit my wife. What does that mean? I didn't hit my wife. No, no one else did well, someone, someone else, else did, right? Else did. If I say I didn't hit my wife, what does that mean? I might have kicked her, I might have punched her, I might have, uh, I don't know, abused her, or whatever, something like that. I didn't hit her! <laughs> might have employed some other form of uh, abuse, right? If I didn't hit my wife, I might have hit someone else's wife. Like I, you know, this is a example one of my friends gave it and told me I, I really like it. I, yeah. Not because I didn't think didn't spend time to update it, <laughs> um, but that's an example where uh, the it, oral instruction works much better. And we all know this intuitively. It's much better to go to school and hear from an instructor. It just works better. It's it's, it's a better form of instruction. When you go to school, additionally, you develop relationships with, uh, with teachers and with fellow students. There's a dynamic community effect that's very positive. The Almighty wanted us uh, students, our students, to have a relationship with the previous generation. There's this link. Right? When you have a relationship with, a, student, with, a, with a, a teacher who had a relationship with a teacher who had a relationship with a teacher going back to Moses, there's a special flavor that cannot be captured if it was just everyone studying by themselves with a book. And lastly, um, the reason, another reason, fourth reason given why oral instruction is the preferred method of transmitting our Torah is because when it's oral, it doesn't get in the hand of Gentiles. And um, not to say that we uh, belittle Gentiles or anything like that. Point being is that the Torah is for the Jews. And the day that the Torah was translated into Greek, the Septuagint, is a day of mourning because once the Torah got into non-Jewish hands, we were constantly, I had to go on these apology tours of trying to explain, and they didn't have the insight, they didn't have the background, and then you have people like Julius Wellhausen who analyzes the book 
the Torah book as uh, any, as you would any other book doesn't have the method of doesn't have the the instructions of how to actually use the book. We'll get to that in a second. And therefore, he develops an entire philosophy uh, that that claims that the book was forged or was fabricated or there's multiple instruct- instructions because he doesn't have the yes, tools. Doesn't understand. Like, the, yeah. like you, you, you don't know how to use the book. You don't know how to read the language. You studied Hebrew in your 20s. Mm-hmm. How exactly? And that is a liability for us. So, And opening up the, the, the oral Torah as well. Many, many, many Jews were persecuted for things that the Talmud said because, uh, because uh, the, the Gentiles got their hands on it and they, they don't understand what it means. They don't understand. The, they, they don't study the entire Talmud. How many, how many Gentiles study the entire Talmud? How many Jews study the entire Talmud? <laughs> uh, so they don't have that same perspective and it's a very negative thing. So, uh, in, in, so and, and additionally... For these reasons, the Torah, the oral Torah, there's a law prohibiting the transcribing or the codifying of the oral Torah for these reasons. Now, so what do we have? We have a written book. We have the oral methods of how to actually use it, how to interpret it, the understanding of the laws, all the practical applications of the laws. We have evidence uh, uh, um, in the book itself that refer to the companion uh, companion uh, uh, instruction. Um, uh, like we the, the, many many times in the Torah, the Torah says um, place in the ears or um, uh, uh, seem a place in their mouth. Like it references to other forms of, of instruction. Place in the ears of of, of, of Joshua, uh, as I instructed you. Even though the, uh, the Torah itself doesn't say many many times, it's, it, it, the Torah itself testifies to the other existing the written Torah itself to the other existing um, uh, instruction. Now. We're going to take the question and flip it on its head. Rabbi, if the oral form of instruction is so vastly superior, so vastly superior to, to write anything down, why do we need the written Torah? Ta-da! Question of the day. It's a good question. Just have it all maintained in oral, in oral form. Why would you need to write things down? Because of the, the problem of being misinterpreted. Why would it be misinterpreted? Because rabbis are human. That's it. And they got their, their foibles. They got their thing, well, it, should be, it probably should be done this way. This sounds better. This way. So what you're saying is, is, is correct. Um, when you study by a rabbi, right, you're, it's, a, it's, 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 it's 500 years before the Common Era, and the Jewish people are living with autonomy and sovereignty over Israel, and they have the Sanhedrin. Everything's, everything's fine and dandy. You study by the rabbi, and he tells you, I heard this from my teacher, I heard it from his teacher, all the way dating back to Moses. You could ask a question, right? If their oral tradition does not comply with the written book, right, then it, then it has to be discarded. <laughs> Hence, the two uh, elements of the Torah feed off each other. The oral Torah can all be derived from the written Torah once you know the rules of deducing from the written Torah. And the written Torah is the framework for the oral Torah. So in essence, when, when we ask the question of how do we know what we know about Judaism, there's two answers. There's number one, tradition, and number two, deduction from the written Torah. If you open up the Talmud, it's all flipped on its head here. There's a little bit of a subtle point here. You open up the Talmud, and it says, an eye for an eye. An eye for an eye. An eye for an eye. So what does that mean? Someone pops at your eye, what do you do? Poke there, you poke, right? You poke there, that's what it says in the Torah. 
You don't like that, huh? No. <laughs> and that's Torah law, right? Right? Yeah. Right? Wrong. Thank you. Yeah, Wrong. You open up the Talmud in Tractate Baba Kama, and it says, an eye for an eye, this means money. This oh, means yeah. money. Civil justice, value of an eye for value right. of an eye. Exactly. <laughs> and the Talmud says, wait a minute, it says an eye for an eye. Mm-hmm. The, written, the written book contradicts your tradition. When the written book contradicts your tradition, your tradition has to be discarded unless you use the principles of deduction of the written tradition to explain or, 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 or to support, uh, uh, to bolster um, your, your oral tradition. So it'll say like this. It will deduce using the 13 or 32 principles of biblical deduction to prove from the Bible itself that an eye for an eye means money. Now you'll say, okay, fine. So if you read the Talmud, you'll say, hey, how do we know that an eye for an eye means money? We took the written document. Mm-hmm. We took the methods of instruction. right? And we'll get to that in a second. This is also another cool, critical point. The methods of deduction. And we deduced from proofs within the book itself that it must be money. But in essence, that was, that's the opposite. In essence, it was a tradition. Mm-hmm. Eye for an eye means money. There was a challenge from the written book, and then it was substantiated from uh, the principles of the deduction of the rich, ri- written book to prove that it indeed means money. So m- many proponents of capital punishment in the modern day, let us say, again, say, it goes back to the Bible, eye for an eye. Meaning, let's say, misinterpret or don't know what they Well, that's an example of, of the problem of having the written book in the hands of of the people that don't know how to use it. So let me read you, let me read, this is, this is, this is a, uh, a very brief um, description of the 13, what they call the 13 principles of, of elucidation or deduction. <clears throat> Number one, ready guys? Through a conclusion inferred from a lenient law to a strict law, and vice versa, right? If a lenient law has a certain element to the law, then most certainly a strict law has that as well. It's called Kalva Homer. Right? If a leniency has a stringency, then, then certainly a stringency has a stringency as well. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Okay. Number two, through tradition that similar words in different contents are meant to clarify each other. Many, many, many hundreds of times in the Talmud, the Talmud would say, hey, this word over here matches the same, in Genesis, matches the same word in, in Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, it means X or refers to X. Therefore, in uh, Genesis, it means X as well, mm-hmm. and vice versa. Hence, similar words are bridges to transfer laws. Mm-hmm. So, if, like, for someone to claim, by the way, to, to actually claim that this was all just fabricated by man, like, it's, it's so incredibly complex that you have an enormous amount of information, and all of it is just coded with each other and sending back information back, back and forth. Mm-hmm. I'll give you guys an example of this. Uh, in... In Deuteronomy, it says, when a man shall marry a woman, and he doesn't like her, and he, he finds that she, that she committed adultery, and he divorces her. That's what it says. The word it says for marriage is, he yikach ish isha. Yikach means to take. From this word, yikach, from the, the, the word that was used um, to describe the process of marriage, the Talmud deduces from all the way back in Genesis, that's the same word that was describing the, 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 the transaction when Abraham bought the, uh, the cave from Ephron to bury Sarah. It says, 
Hasadeh Asher Lakach Avraham, the same word, and there it meant with money. That's how we know that that the that that uh, marriage in Judaism can happen with presentation of a ring. We're in a presentation of the ring, as we as 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 all Jewish marriages today happen. There's a presentation of the ring that clips the marriage. Right? Similar words, similar words, and they and they, they teach you laws. Even though one's talking about marriage, one's talking about a transaction that happened with Abraham and Ephron uh, 3,800 years ago, but because the Torah used the same words, it teaches you that there's a connection between the two. If that was done with money, that could be done with money or monetary, monetary value as well. Did Hamburi get his... Uh, Hammurabi? Hammurabi. That's a good question. I was um, going to ask you, what was the time frame for the Code of Hammurabi? I think when people compare the Hammurabi Code to the Torah, Hammurabi Code was this great king Hammurabi, which, by the way, very, very cool insight. Hammurabi was like 1750 or so. Something around the, t- around the time, yes. 13-something with Moses, was that? The yes. Okay. So um, the word Hammurabi, the word Ham, where's the word Ham? Where's that coming in the Torah? Um, well, I was going to say, who's Noah? No, sons of Noah. That's right. That's right. That's right. And and um, in all likelihood, this Hammurabi was one of the uh, was one, was a descendant of Ham of Ham, mm-hmm. who lived right about that time, mm-hmm. and um, and therefore when uh, the the precursor to to the written Torah or to the Torah the the, the Moses's Torah. Um, as studied by Abraham, you know Abraham had Torah even beforehand. There was some sort of, like from for like from Adam to Noah, there was some sort of tradition. Uh, the Hammurabi Code shares a lot of elements with the Torah because it shares a uh, uh, it, it shares a commonality with uh, with with that family that had like Noah had uh, had Torah in, in you know in a, 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 a you know in a kind of like a a, a um, what's the word I'm looking for. Not, yeah, not rough, rough or draft. not a rough draft. I uh, um, if this is where I'm looking for. I apologize. A um, a primitive form of Torah. So yes, when it shares common elements, um, it, th- that's probably that. But now, Kordah Hamrabi is this basically this this code that they found and they were able to <laughs> interpret it is like a list of laws of 282 laws written on this big big block. I think they have it like the British Museum because the British. The British pilfered everything that they came across. It's amazing, like how, like you know, the the Jews get beef. Well, I would have done the same, probably. I don't know. (laughs) This is priceless. We're the the British Empire. Like we we control the we control the world. You know, think about the British imperialism. That's what they did. You know. (laughs) That's the British. You know, we think of them as these nice people who just drink tea. You know. So they so they found this and they interpreted it like yeah but to compare it to the Torah it's 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 a gross mispresentation of the first of all, the exhaustive nature of the Torah the complexity of the Torah uh, the the scope of the Torah is much 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 grander and plus the tradition of the Torah as well but yes it does share, it, does, it does share like I think they found an eye for an eye there as well yeah. they did yeah so 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 yes yeah, so in they they sh- they share. Um, um, the precursor to the Torah, as as the what the knowledge that Noah had and Adam had and Abraham had, probably this Hammurabi, this descendant of Ham, had as well, and he he formulated a uh, 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 some sort of doctrine out of that. Is, is all of this where the rabbis got the 
notion that if you are kind when you are, if you are kind when you should be cruel, the day will come when you are cruel and you should be kind. That is. Is, is that an element to what we're talking about here? Uh, well, that's that's a that's a, that's I believe that's in a um, that a Talmud or a Medrash that says that if someone has mercy on the cruel, mm-hmm. then eventually they'll have uh, they'll be cruel to uh, when they should be kind. Yeah, yeah, and like the examples given is like when Saul Saul had mercy on Am- Amalek, and eventually he you know slaughtered towns of mm-hmm. completely innocent people. An example of someone having misguided. You know, misguided. Um, com- yeah, like you know, when someone like tries to be more holy than God wants them to be, you know, tries mm-hmm. to overthink the situation. But I don't. Um, what's the relevance to that Is here? Misguided forgiveness. Maybe, perhaps, perhaps. You know, we have a very low tolerance for evil. Like that's the that's the core of our nation. That's Moses exemplified that. Like we don't accept it. Like when something's evil and something's wrong, uh, the Jewish response is to vanquish that. Uh, when someone tries to be, uh, the Talmud says that when someone tries to, you know, tries to, you know, be, uh, you know, be all nice to the murderers, it's not a good thing, and it eventually will result in the innocent getting slaughtered. But what's well, Jennifer? What's the relevance to that to, to this? Well, you're talking about um, the, the need for both, for the oral law and the written law. And my guess was um, there needs to be not just a rabbi's idea of what is and is not appropriate in a specific situation. It, it leads too much to, uh, to influence from the local culture to, to a weak rabbi. Okay, so that could potentially happen. No one, no one's going to deny right, that that could happen. The written as well as the oral. But when you have, when is you a better plan than just having an oral. Yeah, yeah. But what I'm trying to prove now is that each one on their own essentially could teach you the same thing, because once you have these tools and understand how to read the written Torah, um, you could actually deduce all the oral laws as well from it. So this, I'd read you two of them, but I'd quickly go through the rest of them. A general principle derived from one verse and a general principle derived from two verses. A general statement limited by specification. If you have a general principle, then a specification, or a general principle, then a specification, and then another general principle. I don't want to get into this this details. Point being is that, remarkably, we could take the written Torah and extrapolate from that the oral Torah. Thus, the written Torah, uh, um, the written Torah itself. Um, uh, functions as an assurance for the oral tradition to, uh, 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 to, be, to, to be true. All of this was written down once, once this, this, this ideal form of transmission became impossible. Right? Uh, we talked about the hadrionic persecutions. You know? If we're living in a world where we can have, for 20 years, we can have a, a Judaism where studying Torah publicly uh, is punishable in pain of death, of, of practicing any form of Jewish law is punishable in pain of death. If the rabbis were prohibited from, uh, from, uh, from, um, from assigning uh, uh, um, um, new rabbis, like smicha was, was banned. Once that exists and the central authority is disbanded and the temple is no longer in existence, the Jewish people are spread out throughout the world, if it's not written down, it, it will be forgotten. It will be forgotten. 
But what's very critical, when we talk about the Mishnah and the Talmud, uh, when it was written down, it was written down with a minimal encroachment on, on the principle. If you look at the Mishnah, right, the Mishnah, the 63 books of the Mishnah, you'll find that it's written very tersely, very, very succinctly, very shortly, and it's just loss. What they decided to do was not to fully write down the oral Torah, everything, rather just the core laws, because once you do that, you still maintain the oral flavor and you still necessitate the oral instruction to a degree. So once you have just the core law, well, the sources for the law you don't have, the extrapolations, the exceptions, uh, the analysis, everything else must be maintained in its oral form until that was eventually written in the Talmud. Uh, thus, when we have a Talmud today, it's comprised half of Mishnah, half of Talmud. More, it's probably like 4% Mishnah and 96% Talmud because the Mishnah is very, very short and the Talmud just expands and expands and expands uh, on that uh, very short law. Uh, like an example would be um, if you have a, a custodian, if I come to someone and say, hey, watch this item for me. You have a custodian, watch this item for me. Uh, and that item gets stolen. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, 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 I come to Vitaly and say, hey, watch my phone for me. For you know, I'm going on vacation, keep an eye on it. And someone breaks into this house and steals it, you know. Do you have to pay me or not? So, well, you have the option to, to either pay me if you want, or you could swear that it was stolen from you and that you're not, ne- you weren't negligent, and you would get off the hook. You know, that's what says the Mishnah. That that would be an example of the Mishnah. But the Talmud would say, well, what if someone pledges to pay, um, uh, but doesn't actually pay? You know, or what happens if this, if 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 the thief is apprehended and then they have to pay a penalty payment? Who who does that go to? You know. Very much the expanding of the core law is going to be done in the Talmud. Okay, so I, I, I feel like we dedicated a lot towards... Uh, I didn't really get to everything I wanted to get to, of course. Uh, we also have... Twen- we got 30 minutes. 30 minutes, okay. We have, tw- we have 19 other books that comprise the, uh, the Bible. Anyone wants to list the, the, all 24, 24 books of the Bible? Anyone wants to make an attempt to see how far we could get? So we, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, first and second. I'm well, no, it's all because they're one. Oh well, you know, grew up Christian. I've got to memorize that way. Okay, so the okay, five books of the Torah: Lamentations, Joshua. Let's do them in order: Joshua, Judges, Samuel. Well, Samuel wants to be a Christian invention. Samuel wants Samuel too, but it's still Samuel. Kings. Jeremiah, There's Isaiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Ezekiel the, 12 the twelve. Daniel. So that's that's thirteen. Amos. That's one of the that's one of the twelve. Micah. One of the twelve. Yeah. Oh, you're not going to let us split them up? Oh, you can split them up. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, um, Hosea, Joel, Amos, um, Nahum, Habakkuk. I'm going to mispronounce these. Um, it's a good job. Malachi. Malachi. It's okay. That's okay. Okay, so we have 24 books. What is the function of these books? We don't get any mitzvahs from any of the books. The function of these other books is supplementary because it, A, gives us a perspective in history, B, it gives us a heavy, heavy dose of... Uh, uh, of 
of of musar of musar, <laughs> right? Of, of 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 castigation, so to speak. It mm-hmm. sh- it gives descriptions of the misdeeds of previous generations as instructions for us when we read it. But we will learn also to not make the same mistakes as they did. We have Psalms, the compendium of, 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 of Psalms, which is... Psalms and songs, we forgot that one. Song, well, song of songs, Ruth, <laughs> Esther, <laughs> Lamentations, yeah. right? yeah. Ecclesiastes. Yeah. Nice. And Ecclesiastes. Yeah. Job, Job. Right, the Job is, a, is, is, a, is you know, it's another example of, of, according to Jewish tradition, Job was actually written by Moses. Yeah, Job's one of the oldest. Isn't it? I, I think, I think yeah. there's, there's, there's a disagreement even within Jewish tradition exactly who wrote it, but the one opinion says it was Moses. Yeah. Uh, the Psalms is primarily written by King David, but... but contributed to David. No, well, it, some, it's uh, Psalms and 103 chapters. So some of them says it's written by David. Like some of them, yeah. but them are written by the sons of Korah, some of them written by Moses. Tefillah in the Moshe Israel came Psalms 90, right? Mm-hmm. A prayer to Moses, it's written by Moses. Um, some of them written by. I think I think there's there's ten different authors uh, um, to Psalms itself. The function of two doors all of them quickly. It's in order. No. Genesis. No, no, no. Okay. I was like, oh, just Google it. Okay, sorry. <laughs> we did. We did. We did a good job. We we did a good job. The the function of this is to give us the history, to give us also the. Uh, the instruction of the misdeeds and the failings of previous generations, and that will help us not follow their path and stay in the straight and narrow. You, you, you know, you, you read uh, the you know the great castigations of of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and give and, and many of these things you read them, and today they would they careen through as well, because the um, the direction of the flow of humanity, you know, doesn't really change. The temptations and the mistakes and the, uh, the, the various ways that humans and Jews have gone awry, um, they take different forms, but they share commonalities. And we could read those today, and we could still find insight. We could still find uh, uh, spiritual guidance and direction, you know, and moral instruction that is as valuable to, uh, to us today. Mm-hmm. But we don't actually derive laws from them. From, uh, from them. If you look at the Talmud... Let's fast forward to the Talmud here. Uh, the Talmud and the Mishnah. So these were um, canonized, so to speak, or codified as being the last word of oral instruction. And if we were to actually study the Talmud from beginning to end, memorize them, have deep insight and guidance of actually how to use them, have all the things that the people of those times had, we would able to come to the ultimate goal of it all, and that's halacha. What would we do? We would take all of Talmud, analyze it all as one, take all the millions of words in Talmud, and and all you know, and everything collectively, and be able to do from that law. The problem is that it's so vast, and so voluminous, and so dense. Like one page, if you really study it, and you just analyze it. You could spend months on page on, on one page. I, you know, I, I myself guilty as charged. Like I have spent many years studying um, two or three pages of Talmud. You know, um, not the sharpest guy in the world, but yeah, 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 yeah. Affordable care act. Affordable care act, right? <laughs> well, the four the same, but most 
of other wisdoms that we encounter are, are, are horizontal. Like for open we're talking about, what, 27,000 pages, right? It's a lot of information, but... 2700. Sometimes 100, okay. Wait, once it's 2700, who cares, right? No, ironically, the Talmud is also 2,711 pages. But this vertical study as well, it's, it's, it's all, it, it, you know, even the Talmud itself is written in a way that there's so much vast wisdom to uncover that you could literally spend years studying one or two pages. Literally years. Uh, and not just uh, on the weekends. Like, you know, uh, there were yeshivas in Israel uh, where they, over six months, over six months, they, the entire yeshiva would study like one or two pages. One or two pages. Like, like, what does a page of Talmud look like? What a Talmud here for? Like, this is what it looks like. Like, how many words is that, you know? You have the Talmud here in the middle, commentary of Rashi on the side, commentary of Tosfot. Like, okay, you know, study the page. You move on to the next page. The point is that they, 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 they stress the vertical study, and the vertical study is, is really... You know, it's really infinite. You should keep on going. You know, because there's just so much there, so much to uncover, and theoretically, that is that that is possible. There was the great Chazonish, the great rabbi who lived in Israel, and died in 1953. He famously said, "He said, what does it mean to be a Torah scholar? What's the definition of Torah scholar? A Tamid Chacham, a Torah scholar. What's the definition?" So he said, like he gave a great definition. He says, "A Torah scholar is someone who could study 40 pages of Talmud." in one day and could also study one page of Talmud over 40 days yeah. and study 18 hours a day mm-hmm. that's a Torah vertical and horizontal study it's, we could do both of them you know in yeshivas today uh, usually the morning the morning uh, section uh, the morning four hour uh, block of, is, is dedicated towards the vertical study mm-hmm. and the afternoon is to the horizontal study so you would study let's say a page in the afternoon but much quicker, you know, or even half a page. Uh, and in the morning you would study a half a page a month or a week, you know, with, with a vertical study. So vertical meaning that you go and deeper, deeper. different sources which you find to the place, look at them, and then those sources lead to other sources. And analyze and it. And bifurcation, which is endless, right? Yes, mm-hmm. yes, yes. Yeah, I, I heard somebody describe um, Talmud study once as you should view it as the ocean. And you can choose whether you're going to try to just surf on top of it, and you know, and that would basically be like just see what it says and figure out generally what's going on, or if you've got time to scuba dive. Yeah, you know? and you keep it on plumped, and, yeah. and that's actually the Bible itself says, "Aruham eretz midrachavniyam." It's it's as broad and as uh, as 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 the ocean, and, and you know, and, and as deep as the ocean. So that's a mm-hmm. that's a good that's a good um, that's a good uh, characterization. <coughs> now, what's I'm the no, I would just, if I had me doing that, I'd be pulling my hair out in five minutes. Well, I'd why is that? So fa- but it, but it's, <laughs> but it's, but it's, but it's so fascinating. Yeah, and but I can't dwell on something that long. So, but, but yeah. And yet you were a brain surgeon? No, 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 not a surgeon. I'm just a thinker. I never oh, did anything. He was a neurologist. <laughs> or neurologist. <laughs> now, um, the Talmud was finished, and there was a problem. Because you have all the information is there, but how are you going to access it? How is the average Joe going to know what to do with the Talmud? It's all there, but you kind of have to know everything. 
It's not necessarily written everything in the same place. You have different sections of the Talmud. Talmud you go on meander in different directions and start talking about other things, and you'll have an, an issue of Talmud or an idea of Jewish law that's split up into eighteen different places in the Talmud. So the great Torah scholar has to know all the places that this idea is mentioned, to know each one individually, to understand how they relate to each other. Like it's very complex. So after the writing of the Talmud, we developed a new kind of literature called uh, responsa literature, where responsa, where when someone would write a question to the scholar and the scholar would respond, and that would be pu- would be publicized. We have I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of responsa books written till to, till to this day. Like a what is what? Dear Abby. Well, <laughs> um, now, I, I brought here an example of, of this. This is uh, from the 18th century, the Node of Yehuda. This is this great rabbi who lived in the 18th century. Um, he was six foot eight. Huge. Um, this huge man who wrote these incredible. I've studied some of this, like a very close affinity. Um, he was the rabbi of the city of Prague. And he wrote. Uh, many, many, many. Like you see, like these tiny letters. Like we ask these questions. And I, 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 there was, there was this one particular. I, I had made a. Yeah. <laughs> I made a note of it here. There was this one particular question that he got, and you know, it's. This is the question. Right? It's a very long and very bizarre and like eye-popping story of of this woman who committed adultery with like. Ten people in the community, like gory details, like and you're like, whoa, like mm-hmm. you kind of think, like we, you know, we think that you know the misdeeds of today's generation are like, you know, we we discovered something, you know, mm-hmm. as if it's you know it's a new thing. This, like the description, it, it's such in such gory detail, and you're like, whoa, like you, uh-huh. and and yeah, the question. No, it's a whole story. It's the whole story. Yeah, yeah. Is it all about the female? <laughs> no, it's about okay, the... It's about yeah. the ten men, too. Because I just wanted to be clear. Yeah, uh, like, does anybody get, get in trouble? You're going to start studying this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so that's... So the, and the question is, it's a very complex story. Mm-hmm. And the question is, we know that a woman who commits adultery is... Uh, she, her husband has to divorce her. Mm-hmm. So the question is, does the husband have to divorce her? Is he obligated to divorce her? So he writes this 30-page, literally 30 pages, like tiny letters, um, responds to this question. And he starts off, and I love, I, I, don't, I don't know anyone who's actually read this because it's so vast, it's so enormous. It's just one of the questions that he has here, but it's one that I, I, I had encountered. I'm like, whoa, I think I always kept this, you know. I saw you dog that Yeah. So um, he starts off by saying, there's six reasons why this woman should be permitted to marry. And all of them, from every corner of the Talmud, Mm-hmm. And and not only corners of the Talmud, corners of all the uh, of of all the commentaries, like mm-hmm. just, and this is before computers, like you know, this is like memorization of of yeah. thousands of books, and not not just memorizations of of the themes, but on, on on the on the nuance and the subtleties, like it's just incredible the, the scholarship that that we have in just one of these uh, many 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 hundreds of books. And he didn't have clerks. He didn't no, have no, nobody. And and he writes this as uh, I can think of six reasons. From every corner of the Talmud, by the way, and then he says, "But each one of them, I'll disprove." So he starts off by saying, "Okay, let's disprove the first reason," and it spends like five pages, like analyzing and analyzing. incredible, incredible, incredible scholarship. I, I, I think if you, if, we, I, if anyone actually reads this beginning to end, like if we were to do a study of this 
it would take us probably five years to finish just, just one response because it's all based upon you have to know so many things before you even read what he says in itself. And each, you know, if we were actually just, okay, from, from now on, we're just studying this response because it's so super interesting, it would probably take us five years to finish it. And maybe, maybe then, you know, and just yeah, cranked it out. Did he say to divorce her or yes or no? He said yes. Yeah. But no, but but you read it and you're like, this is just incredible, yeah, incredible. It, it's like a Supreme Trump. Court opinion, right? Oh, basically, is it's like this it's, blows Supreme yeah. Court opinions out of no, the sky. But but, but, but the, that's the, the kind of thing. And yeah, the thinking and the reasoning behind it are the same. It's She's more about to death, not stone to death. No, 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 no. This is this this is in the 18th century. There's no uh, the Jewish the Jewish uh, 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 criminal courts are are, are have been discontinued for any. Yeah. 100 years. Yeah. So he's, right. he, but but he has first he presents six potential reasons why yeah. it should be allowed, and then he spends 30 pages to um, dismantling reason number one, Opposing reason number arguments. two, reason yeah. number three, reason number four. Like, yeah. like this is just one. Well, this, well, yeah, because basically, every, obviously, you have to divorce her. Like, there's no doubt about what she did, but there's no value in giving a short answer. The value in addressing opposing arguments is that he knows that for his community, this is going to stand as a facet of the entire body of law. And so whatever, in, in addressing these arguments and then in drawing his ultimate conclusions, he's giving guidelines of reasoning that other people behind him can use in facing similar situations. That's right. It's like... That's right. So this will be invoked in further... just that one woman. It's here's an additional... <coughs> body of principles right. that you should think about when dealing with these sort of situations. These are the stringencies, these are the leniencies, mm-hmm. and this is where we can compromise and where we can't. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's right. I mean, that's why you would do it that way. Right, but the, that's true, but yeah. uh, comparing it to the, to the Supreme Court this, uh, decisions is, is not oh, fair I'm, because I'm not, it's so much more vast. I, yeah, like for, for, every, for every word right. of, of Supreme Court yeah. decisions that we have, we probably have 500 books. You know? It's yeah, just, I mean, it's just, it's just astonishingly different. And, and, the, and the complexity and yeah. like, you know. Anyhow. Yeah, it's Jewish law. Yeah. It's Jewish law, of course, of course. It's like and you're, it, you're a member of two nations. You have two of course, bodies of law. Of course, yeah. of course, of course. And there's, it's very infrequent we find actually a conflict. Mm-hmm. There's no conflict. It's, it's Jewish law. Almost never is there is there is there conflict. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of the, uh, the thing that's going to explode after after the Talmud is written because, as we said. For the average guy, the Talmud has it all, but it's it's unusable because what are you going to do? Like, you're going to study all of Talmud, you're going to dedicate now 70, 80 years of your life, and then you're going to answer the question you need now? He's just going to study it. Well, I'm saying, yeah. You know? Or what do you practice as you're studying it? Yeah. Uh, In... Beginning in the uh, in the tenth century of the Common Era, we have an era called a group of, of five hundred years, basically, of scholarship called the Rishonim. And the Rishonim are going to do so much to uh, making the Talmud more accessible. They're going to write commentaries, and there's going to be so many books written, and there's going to be such an explosion of 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 scholarship that's going to change the Jewish world. Uh, Example that we talked about, Maimonides. Maimonides outlines in his introduction. He says, "I am going to organize all of Jewish law 
all of Jewish practice, all of Jewish philosophy in one book, which is really 14 books, uh, but wherein you won't need the Talmud because I'll synthesize all the Talmud and it will be the end of all this whole response and none of that. You just go to the book and it's all organized on topic and it's all broken down uh, to perfection. You don't need anything else. And uh, while he uh, succeeded, he also failed. He succeeded because this became um, the one of the one of the pivotal books of what we have today in Jewish law, right? synthesizing the Talmud, organizing it. Uh, but additionally, when he see, when he seeked to end all books, and in fact is the most uh, the, the his book, the commentary, the the, the, the book of, of of the Rambam is the book that is there are more, more books written about it than any other book. Uh, I, I mentioned this when we talk about Maimonides and back in the classroom that there's there's three hundred books a year published annually uh, on on this book of Maimonides. An incredible explosion of scholarship. We have stories of heroism amongst these people, like the authors of the Tosfot. Tosfot are the, on the margins of every Talmud, so every Tal- Talmudic page you'll have. Uh, in the middle, you'll have Rashi, also from mm-hmm. that time period, commentary uh, on the Talmud, analysis from different parts of the Talmud, and the Tosfot on the, on the outer margins mm-hmm. also. I have a dumb beginning Yes. Tosafot. That's a group of people. That's a that's a group a group of people. Yes. Okay. And yes, so it'll be uh, different bits of commentary. That's from right. Different that's rabbis it's it's French, French and German uh, uh, schools, primarily comprised of Rashi's grandchildren okay. and his disciples. Okay. And what's it called? Tosafot. Tosafot, Tosafot means additions. Oh, so this was a time that the the the, uh, the medieval ages were, you know, very very. Um, uh, harrowing time for for many Jewish communities. Uh, we have the Inquisition, we have the Crusades. And Crusades is like hundreds of years of total turmoil and total like you're at the mercy. Like thousands of, of, of little Jewish towns were slaughtered. Mm-hmm. So you have these. Uh, we have uh, documentation of certain parts of the Talmud that were written in caves. These these great scholars are are, are in caves and they're all alone and they're hiding from the authorities, mm-hmm. and they're writing they're writing they're writing down their their books. Mm-hmm. But they don't have any ink. So we have these stories of them actually cutting themselves and writing with blood. Like mm-hmm. We know there's certain parts of the Torah, but we know this was all written in blood. You know, we know it. It's yeah. in the book of, of Shabbat. Like, mm-hmm. That's what I mean by heroism. There was, there was, there was such an explosion of, mm-hmm. of uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of commentaries written on the Talmud at that, in that time, and many of them under, under very, very uh, challenging circumstances. Uh, mm-hmm. So we have uh, some in commentary form, some like the Rambam, which is, which is not, ba- not written on the Talmud, but organized uh, um, anew. You have uh, the, the example of, of, of the Rambam. You have the, the tour also wrote, wrote all of, of Jewish law in a way similar to Maimonides. Mm-hmm. It, Maimonides organized them in conceptual order. Tour organized them in order of the day. So like for Maimonides, the first thing that he writes is, hey, you got to believe in God mm-hmm. and the laws of faith and the laws of study of Torah. Like starting from most important to least important, you have the tour who does kind of the same, uh, tries to do the same thing. Uh, even though he is a little bit more, uh, he is a little bit more uh, expressive and more and more expansive and, and incorporating more opinions uh, by name, but he's going to start off by saying, "Hey, what's the laws of the morning? You wake up in the morning. What are you supposed to do? 
and like the laws of like washing your hands like in the morning and yes. the laws of then the morning prayers and eventually finishing all the morning prayers and afternoon prayers and morning and laws of eating of, of, of eating breakfast and the laws of saying the blessings before the meal and after the meal and different things within the meal like that's the order that he did you have a third way of doing it which is organized by the order of the Talmud so like the, the Rif Rabbi Al-Fasi very very instrumental figure uh, in the development of the oral Torah, of writing it, of, 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 of the expansion, he's going to write it in the order of the Talmud, uh, as, as, will, as, 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 will, as will the Rush. You have uh, this book called the Chinuch, one of three volumes. The Chinuch reorganized, he, well, he didn't really organize Jewish law, but this is a great starter book. If someone wants to know what, like, like what we think about Judaism, like just Judaism, it's one of the best starter books because what he does is he counts 613 mitzvahs, mm-hmm. organized as how they appear in the Bible. Mm-hmm. So the first one would be, be fruitful and multiply. That shows up right in the beginning of Genesis. Mm-hmm. That's mitzvah number one. And he will tell you in the mitzvah just the basic outline of the mitzvah and then the rationale for the mitzvah, right? the reasonings for the mitzvah. You know, just a few details about the mitzvah and then moves on to the next mitzvah, which would be circumcision. Mm-hmm. That's mitzvah number two that shows up also in, the, in, the, in, in Genesis. And then just through from, from Genesis to Deuteronomy, all 613, uh, where, they, where, they find, where they find them in, 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 the, in the Torah, and a little bit about them. Um, like, so I, I think, like, the, to me, like, this is a very good place. I want to like, know what we mean when we say Judaism. Mm-hmm. Um, like, here, I picked out here, Mitzvah 16. He tells us not to break a bone, so I mentioned it earlier, not to break a bone in the Karban Pesach. And I'll say, what's the reason behind it? Yeah. Uh, you know, to remember the miracles of, of 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 Egypt, of the Exodus from Egypt. Is all of this um, transcribed into English? Yeah, the Chinuch they the Chinuch they did in English. It's very 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 um, very good. But I would advise everyone to get it and read it. So it was also it's not so hard. <laughs> it's not gonna take you years. Um, uh, and it give, and it gives you a very clear insight. You know. But he, you know, and he tells you why do we have this mitzvah, like the rationale behind it. And he says, don't think that there's, well, there's so many mitzvahs to remember. And he goes on like here. <laughs> I, I would, if we had more time, I would tell you. I would just go through this. Very interesting what he says here. So he's just one guy, though. Yeah. The Chinook is like. Yeah, one man, one so man, one, one book. One man. Okay. He's a great scholar. We have other books written by him. Yeah, I don't was Maimonides' works preserved when they, the Jews actually in. in during the Inquisition, or around that time, where had them burned. They, they yeah. So, um, but um, the Inquisition already—that's two hundred years after Maimonides is, yes, is, is already dead. Um, and Maimonides' works gained tremendous fame even within his lifetime. Mm-hmm. It was widely. But we do have many books that are gone to time. Um, mm-hmm. For example, um, Maimonides' son. Rabbi Abraham, the son of Maimonides, who suffered the unfortunate fate of being the son of the great person, who's the son of another great person, mm-hmm. you know, you know, but who's who lives his entire life in the shadow of his father. So he wrote a book sourcing all of Maimonides. Like when we spoke about Maimonides, we said that one of the problems with Maimonides is that there's no sources. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he wrote that book, but we don't have it. We have references to it, but we don't have the actual book because everything has been transcribed by hand, and it's very obviously arduous and tedious process. And uh, we don't have it, you know. We'd but the Jews, uh, some, the group of Jews, they gave they gave those books to be burned. Oh, they gave it to be burned. Well, we know that many times Talmud was burned, and no, no. But the Jews themselves felt that it was 
something to do, and then they were. Where did I read that? It but must be in Telushkin or something. Yeah, it's like all of them. I mean, at that point, like there are ships going to other countries. There are Jewish communities in other places. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, like just because this, we have record of this one community destroying all of their books. There are other copies of it elsewhere, and then you know, I mean, you stuff gets hidden away. Well, remember, those days, this was before the printing press, so everything was, all those copies were written by Printing press, that's another good example. What was the second book printed in the printing press? I don't know, the Bible. The second book what? after the Bible? After, after, the, Bible after the Gutenberg Bible, was, was the Bet Yosef. It's one of the critical books we wanted to get to. Um, I don't have so much time, so I want to just quickly outline some more books here, like I picked off my bookshelf. This is a book written by uh, the rabbi of Krakow in Poland. Mm -hmm. uh, he lived in the 17th century, so 16th, I think, and he was my great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, so I have a book. It's called uh, Megala Amukros, which means the or revealer of the depths. Mm -hmm. And it's 252 different interpretations of one verse in, uh, in, in Deuteronomy. And he died at the age of 49, and he died in the middle of writing it. Like, and it's a demonstration. Like, this is a contemporary book, 252. And like, every one of them is really long. Like, he say, hey, look, this is, this is method number 201. He explains it, explains it, 202, 203. Like, it's an incredible amount of depth that we can have in the Torah. You can do it about almost any paragraph in anywhere else. That's right. And then you have, this is a book written in the 1990s. This is... Um, one of, of four on the laws of Shabbat. And this takes the laws of Shabbat and says, okay, we have laws of Shabbat, but what, what about um, air conditioners and refrigerators and, you know, you know, what do you do with all these things, you know? And this is my grandfather's book. Oops, ah, so much more to say. Let's stop here. Yes, question. I have a question, or I have a suggestion, but I'm scared to mention it. I understand Kevin Kaplan Let's do it. Yeah, like an analysis. Okay. Hey, uh, since Rabbi Dan's not here, Rabbi Wolby is talking to the kids. So he's needed. Do y'all want to stick around? And yeah. Okay. Well, and honestly, like if we wanted to do okay. something like that, like analyze.